Support the Metropolitan Opera Guild like never before. We are proud to announce a unique and exciting online auction benefiting our education programs. You and your friends will have the ability to bid on one-of-a-kind opera memorabilia, luxurious travel packages, exclusive experiences with esteemed opera singers, and much more. Our auction opens on May 14th at 12 noon and is available to the general public through June 4th, ending at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. For more information and to register as a bidder, please visit charityauction.bid slash ONA online auction. In Puccini's Tosca, the title character is actually an opera singer, a role tailor-made for opera's greatest divas. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we'll look at what makes Puccini's Tosca such a standard in the Verismo canon. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Giacomo Puccini was immensely popular in his own lifetime, and his operatic works have remained staples in the repertoire worldwide. Floria Tosca is a favorite role for audiences and singers alike, a woman who dramatically fights for the love of her life, the painter Mario Cavaradossi. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Deirdre Bird takes us to Rome at the turn of the 19th century and uncovers how Puccini created this dramatic sensation. When you think of opera, when anyone thinks of opera, Tosca, in name or idea, is what comes to mind. Whether a seasoned opera fanatic or someone who couldn't care less, Giacomo Puccini's Tosca is the operatic prototype of our collective consciousness. It's set in Rome, that most Italian of Italian cities, sung in Italian and composed by an Italian. There's the passionate good guy, his fiery and dramatic lover, and the evil without good cause villain. And don't forget the murder, execution, sexual extortion, and myriad suicides. Tosca stands at the very peak of operatic high drama. Puccini's Tosca is to opera what opera is to Italy, at one time both signified and signifier. In order to better understand Tosca's relationships, we need to take some time to investigate the origins of opera. For audiences on this side of the 21st century, it's hard to conceive of a world without opera. Where would Tolstoy's Anna Karenina have suffered her pivotal moment of social ostracism, if not at the opera house? What structure would Orson Welles' character in Citizen Kane have built to showcase his immense wealth and his wife's lackluster talents? What would the longest-running show on Broadway be today were there no operas for phantoms to haunt? Despite its seemingly innate role in Western arts and society, opera was not a naturally occurring crystallization of antecedent musical art forms. Opera was conceived by a specific group of people 
for a specific reason and at a specific time in history. Loosely defined, opera was created towards the end of the 16th century with the intention of better fulfilling the Aristotelian theory of art as imitation of life. The early 20th century American humorist Robert Benchley famously described opera as when a guy gets stabbed in the back and instead of bleeding, he sings. The joke is a good one. Not only does it play on the prevailing idea of opera as unrealistic, sight unseen, but his quip interrogates the central criticism of this particular genre. How can opera function as a relevant art form when it does not adhere to or support accurate representations of reality? Yet oddly enough, Rationality and a realistic portrayal of human emotion were the very things which the progenitors of opera were seeking to convey. The original concept and form of opera was created on the cusp of the Baroque period between the years of 1577 and 1582 in the salon sessions of Count Giovanni de Bardi, the Count of Vernio, Italy, in an attempt to reform the state of Renaissance music. Bardi's Salon modeled its musical renovations on the then-current-day understanding of ancient Greek music. It is important to note that the Camerata focused on a return to the musical principles of ancient Greece and not a return to the subject matter of ancient Greek dramas. That happened over a hundred years later during the classical period of the 18th century. In a nutshell, opera was created to answer concerns regarding music's relationship to text. By the time the 25-year-old Puccini entered Le Vili, his first one-act opera, into an 1883 competition, the musical landscape sounded very different from its Baroque ancestors. Let's listen to two examples of very similar operatic scenarios, one from the early 1600s and the other from the tail end of the 19th century. The first aria comes from Claudio Monteverdi's early Baroque 1615 L'Orfeo, which is widely considered to be the first fully developed operatic composition. The second example comes from Puccini's 1899 Tosca. The scenes are similar, if not thematically and structurally identical. Both take place at the beginning of Act I. It is the first exchange between a tenor and a soprano. The bulk of the aria is sung by each opera's eponymous lead, and the characters involved are both new lovers high on the early fumes of romantic infatuation. In the excerpt from L'Orfeo we are about to hear, a shepherd, a nymph, and the chorus have just finished introducing a happy Orfeo, who then serenades his short-lived lady love, Eurydice. Ti vidi, e più non felice 
dell'ora che per te sospirai, poiché al mio sospirar tu sospirasti. Felicissimo il punto che la candida mano pegno di pura fede a me porgesti se tanti cori avessi quanto piangere eterno e quante chiome anche questi cogliame nel verde maggio tutti i colmi sarriero e traboccanti di quel piacere oggi mi fa In our second example, Floria Tosca, Puccini's leading lady, uses romantic imagery and declarations of love to woo her distracted lover, Mario Cavaradossi.
The difference is pretty stark. Not only is Monteverdi's aria sparsely accompanied, the work is not even orchestrated as such. As a product of the Renaissance tradition, Baroque orchestral musicians were given general instructions by the composer, but each performance, especially in an aria such as Rosa del Ciel, Vita del Mondo, was largely improvised. Yes, this meant that no two performances were exactly alike. In direct contrast to this type of musical laxity, the late 19th and early 20th century, the age in which Puccini composed, was incredibly precision-oriented. But before we start any discussion of the music, let's take a quick look at some of the text from the two arias we just heard. In the first, Orfeo was singing to his Eurydice, So happy was the day, my love, when first I saw you. Happiest the moment when your white hand, pledge of pure faith, you gave to me. If I had as many hearts as eternal heaven has eyes, and as these lovely hills in green may have leaves, they would all be brimming and overflowing with that pleasure that today makes me content. Pretty straightforward. And Tosca, singing to her Mario, I'll be at your side in the silent darkness, hearing all of those mysterious sounds, from the forest and the briar patches, from the parched herbs and the broken cemeteries, and the aroma of thyme. The night is whispering little words of love, and amorous confessions that soften the heart. With immense fields of flowers, the sea air will throb and the moon will shine. We could probably sample and combine any parts of those two texts without significantly altering the semantic meaning of either. The singer is in love, feels at one with nature, and wishes to make this known to the object of his affection. If the words, the very basis of human understanding, are so similar, why do these two selections feel so different? Not surprisingly, it has to do with the accompanying music. So, what is it that changed over the 300 years between Monteverdi's L'Orfeo and Puccini's Tosca? Leading up to the 1700s, music, in the minds of most listeners, was just an accessory to a text or liturgical writing. It was required to be composed in vast amounts, performed for a specific task, and then discarded, a disposable luxury. Although it wasn't until the later operas of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart that music became more than just an afterthought, most scholars recognize Christoph Gluck's and his librettist Ranieri de Calzavigi's mid-18th century reform trilogy Orfeo et Eurydice, Alceste, and Iphigenie en Tauride as the major turning point in music's relationship to text and the development of opera. Gluck, the German composer of the three operas just mentioned, wrote an open letter published by the Journal de Paris in 1777 explaining the goals of his operas. The union between words and song must be so close that the poetry has to appear to have been patterned on the music no less than the music on the poetry. Gluck and his librettist had indeed purposefully reformed texts perceived primacy over music, but it was not until the very late 18th century operas of Mozart that the music of an opera was formed into a character of its own. Let's take a minute, or actually three minutes and 19 seconds, to hear one of the most famous arias from Puccini's Tosca. Not only is Visi d'Arte, or I Lived for Art, one of the best-known works in the opera, it is a centerpiece of the entire soprano repertoire. Puccini's music is stunningly beautiful. 
but it is the composer's ability to inspire our empathy that truly captivates the hearts of an audience. Music is not capable of sounding like an emotion, but it is capable of provoking an emotion within us. Due to Puccini's talents as a composer, and the traits of the era during which he composed, his music arouses a similar response from audiences as the semantically explicit accompanying words. We are listening to an innocent woman who is the hapless victim of circumstance and the undeserved target of a pitilessly evil figure of authority. Towards the end of Act Two, when faced with the choice of surrendering her body to save her lover, Tosca sings, I lived for art, I lived for love, I never did any wrong to a living soul, and pleads, Why, why God, in this hour of sorrow, do you forsake me this way?
The soprano is obviously the focus, but three-quarters of the time Tosca is in unison with the violins or splitting solo melodic lines with the flutes and celli. Compared with operas just a generation earlier, this orchestration easily constitutes a duet for orchestra and soprano. Listen to just the beginning of the aria without the singer. It is exactly the same excepting a few differences in articulation that are normally covered in the vocal line. It's as if Tosca's words and the orchestral accompaniment are saying the same thing in two different languages, a musical translation of the libretto. In this vein, it would do us all best to try to understand music as it pertains to empathy and language rather than emotion. Robert Vischer, a 19th and 20th century German philosopher who was a contemporary of Puccini's, developed a theory called Einfühlung, or empathy, which dictates that objects of art do not contain emotion, but instead seem to embody qualities of emotions because of the projection into them of moods and emotions originating in the observer. If music does not contain actual emotions, how is it that listeners of varying musical backgrounds assign the same choices of emotional adjectives with astounding uniformity to certain musical passages? Why does the music in Tosca's Visi d'Arte sound as pleading and heartbreaking as her verbal entreaty? In a 1950 lecture entitled Music as the Language of Emotion, Princeton University professor of psychology Carol C. Pratt explained this phenomenon thusly. Music presents to the ear an array of auditory patterns which at the purely formal level are very similar to, if not identical with, the bodily patterns which are the basis of real emotion. The two kinds of patterns are, with respect to their form, practically the same, but the auditory patterns make music, whereas the organic and visceral patterns make emotion. Just there lies the source of all the confusion, for the same words are used for both kinds of experience, for example, in the case of a word like agitation. This humanization of composition, the attempt to pattern the poetry on the music no less than the music on the poetry, was the most significant change between the times of Monteverdi and Puccini. Music's move from the aesthetic glorification of text to the empathetic translation of the libretti elevated its function to that of a supreme dramatic interpreter. 
Opera's nuanced evolution from the Baroque era through to the 19th century was advanced through a series of subsequent European composers, the most prominent of which expertly balanced genius with the aesthetic, social, and philosophical ideals of the age. Like the passing of the baton during a relay race, or some sort of musical family tree, composers are often described as successors to whoever was the most venerable and influential musical representative of the generation prior. For example, Mozart's heir apparent in the field of Italian opera was the Italian composer Gioacchino Rossini, who was born in 1792, one year after the Austrian composer's death. Rossini, with 39 credits to his name, famously quit composing operas at the age of 37, which left the door open for Italy's great hero, Giuseppe Verdi, who composed his first opera in 1841. With the dominant operatic lineage firmly ensconced back in Italy, Giacomo Puccini was groomed to be, and eventually heralded as, the successor to the mighty Verdi. Puccini was born in Lucca, Italy, in December of 1858. An actual descendant of a prominent musical ancestry, Puccini was baptized with five names, Giacomo Antonio Domenico Michela Secondo Maria, the first four of which honored previous Puccinis who had headed up musical life in Lucca. The Puccini family was so significant a part of the town's musical history that upon the death of the five-year-old Puccini's father, the head of the local music institute promised the future post of choir director and organist at the resident cathedral to the little boy during the public funeral. Puccini's fate as a composer was sealed practically from birth. As difficult as we find it to envision a world without the influence of opera, it is just as difficult to conceive of opera without the works of Puccini. It's safe to say that most listeners find their way or are guided into the world of opera through one of two works. Georges Bizet's 1875 Carmen, or Puccini's Musically and narratively speaking, there aren't any extraordinary similarities outside the standard routine of operatic drama, but both these operas share the distinction of best representing Europe's operatic transition into realism, or verismo. After 50-plus years of Romanticism, an artistic, literary, musical, and intellectual movement that began in the late 18th century in response to the rational and individualistic characteristics of the Enlightenment, Thinkers and creators aimed to pull the aesthetic ideal from the realm of the sublime 
down into the gritty, messy, and palpable realities of life. Similarly to how the original architects of opera wished to communicate a realistic portrayal of human emotion through musical form, the intelligentsia of the later half of the 19th century strove towards a similar goal, which rejected romanticism and championed naturalism, an embrace of extreme realism based on the idea that environment determines character. Bizet's Carmen was the operatic calcification of the French realist literature of Flaubert, Balzac, and perhaps especially Emile Zola. As literature is to France, opera is to Italy, and it was through this medium that the Italians adapted their version of realism under the conceptual umbrella of Verismo. The movement was jump-started and defined in 1889 with the exciting one-act opera Cavalleria Rusticana by Pietro Mascagni, a former roommate of Puccini's, and was quickly followed by Ruggiero Leoncavallo's I Pagliacci. Now frequently performed as a set and referred to as Cavpag, these two operas burst onto the scene in a vulgar rush of violence and emotion that took the opera world, Italy, and the rest of Europe by storm. By the 1890s, Puccini had been informally adopted by the House of Ricordi, the largest and most influential publishing house in Italy, as the evident though yet unproven successor to Verdi, their star client. Puccini's first full-length opera for Ricordi, Edgar, premiered in 1888 to yawns and disregard. This failure led to Giulia Ricordi, the then head of the family publishing house, to set Puccini up with a new librettist named Giuseppe Giacosa, who would provide the finished poetry, and playwright Luigi Illica, who was to be in charge of the settings and dramatic direction. Their first attempt, Manon Lescaut, debuted in 1893 to great success. This was the trio of artists who would go on to create Puccini's and opera's biggest hits. Before the success of Manon Lescaut, Puccini joined some friends to see an 1889 performance of the play La Tosca by French dramatist Victorien Sardou. Although Sardou was one of the most performed European playwrights during his lifetime, his plays are rarely translated today, and he is best remembered as one of the primary proponents of the well-made play, a tired genre that imitates the shape of Aristotle's Greek tragedy model. These days, he is probably best known from one of the film director Alfred Hitchcock's most famous and dubiously attributed quotes. When asked for insight into his dramatic inspiration, the director would frequently respond, I always believe in following the advice of the playwright Sardou. He said, torture the women, to which Hitchcock famously added, the trouble today is that we don't torment women enough. Sardou wrote the role of Tosca for his frequent collaborator, Sarah Bernhardt, at the time the most famous actress in the world. Perhaps we owe some of Puccini's initial interest in La Tosca to Sarah Bernhardt herself. She always insisted that the international tours of her performances needed no translations because her acting could transcend language. Judging by her phenomenal global success, Bernhardt's instincts were correct. After his first attendance of Bernhardt's performance of La Tosca, Puccini followed the play from Milan to Turin to see it a second time. Though he didn't speak French, he was struck by the potency of the drama 
and immediately wrote to his publisher that the play suited him exactly and requested the rights from Sardou. It took six years' worth of negotiations, signed contracts, cancelled contracts, and bruised egos before Sardou permanently agreed to a set of terms with the final team of Puccini, Ilica, and Giacosa. By the time Puccini started work on Tosca in 1897, he already had the major successes of Manon Lescaut and the new gold standard of Verismo, La Boheme, to his credit. Tosca, despite its historical setting and larger-than-life characters, is also firmly rooted in the spirit of Verismo. One of the links between La Boheme and Tosca presents itself at the drop of the baton. Puccini's first three operas, Le Vili, Edgar, and Manon Lescaut, featured full-length orchestral overtures that take three minutes, one minute and twenty-five seconds, and one minute and fifteen seconds, respectively, until the first vocal entry. From the late 1700s up through the 19th century, overtures, the introductory music typically preceding the start of an opera's narrative, ranged from five minutes, like Mozart's overture to his 1786 The Marriage of Figaro, to Wagner's 10-minute 1843 overture to The Flying Dutchman. The three Puccini operas just mentioned were short by comparison, but not even close to the rapid-dive overtures of La Boheme and Tosca. These 20th-century explosions are both exactly the same length, 25 seconds, and hurl audiences directly into the lives of the opera's characters. First, La Boheme. And now, Tosca. two works, the length of Puccini's overtures returned to an average of about 1 minute and 15 seconds for the rest of his operatic output. As we heard, Tosca blasts into being with three loud chords from the orchestra, B-flat major, A-flat major, and E major. These chords belong to the opera's villain Scarpia, the chief of police. Puccini's Scarpia, the only truly evil character he ever created, is very different from Sardou's original. In the play, the Sicilian Scarpia is new in town, and his actions are driven by the threat of punishment by his superiors, should he not succeed in capturing the escaped political prisoner, Cesare Angelotti. This detail does not exist in the opera, and Puccini's Scarpia is driven by an unexplained hatred of good. The expansion of Scarpia's role from a pressured and vindictive authority figure to the sacrilegious biblical embodiment of evil, 
supports history professor and author of the excellent book Tosca's Rome, Susan Van Diver Nicasio's suggestion that the chords are more appropriately identified with both Scarpia's evil and the ambience that makes evil possible than the character himself. Similarly to his treatment of Scarpia, Puccini's first order of dramatic business was to purge Sardou's original play of all its overwrought historical and scandalous sexual trappings. Written just around the time of the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution, the play's remarkably inaccurate amalgamation of Napoleonic myth and the short-lived Roman Republic was deliberately intended to cash in on French audiences' growing sense of historical nostalgia leading up to the centennial. Tapping into the hazy nationalistic recollections of the popular subconscious guaranteed a cheap yet successful prefabricated emotional response, a tactic which remains alive and well today. As we know, Tosca is set in the Italian capital city of Rome in the year 1899. Magnifying the intensity of the drama, the entire narrative of the opera unfolds in under 24 hours and centers around the lives of three main characters. Rome's resident diva, Floria Tosca, her lover, Mario Cavaradossi, a painter and political progressive, and the corrupt chief of police, Baron Scarpia. Although Puccini maintained the dramatic historical setting, his trio of characters are motivated by the human emotions of love, loyalty, jealousy, and betrayal, rather than the political or religious. An intentional shift from the civic to the personal that grounds Tosca firmly in the tradition of Verismo. In keeping with Verismo, the action of Tosca is site-specific, lending dimension to the veracity of the narrative. The overture tumbles audiences into a room in the church of the Sant'Andrea della Valle, an actual Roman basilica in the center of the city. Traditionally, the stage is strewn with art materials, palettes, paints, and brushes, surrounding an ambitious work in progress intended to preemptively introduce us to the opera's tenor and resident artist, Mario Cavaradossi. Before meeting any of the opera's leads, the escaped political prisoner, Angelotti, rushes the stage in search of a key left by his sister to aid his escape. A detail absent from the original play, the missing key scenario immediately calls to mind its precursor, the search for the lost key that unites lovers Rodolfo and Mimi in La Boheme. An act as coincidental as a missing key is enough to serve as a commonplace dramatic catalyst, yet another trait of verismo. Angelotti finds his key and quickly hides himself when he hears the church's sacristan enter the room with more art supplies. Then Cavaradossi arrives intent on finishing his latest painting of a beautiful and pious blonde woman with blue eyes. The painting's subject is a fictitious mixture of a frequent congregant's devout facial expression and Cavaradossi's artistic imagination. The painting delivers a similar emotional impetus to the coincidence of the missing key. Cavaradossi has no clue that his innocent portrayal of a woman he doesn't know will serve as the germ that sparks his lover's destructive jealousy and propels the narrative. In order to dispel any suspicion of Cavaradossi's fidelity, we are given the aria Recondita Armonia, during which the tenor muses on the physical differences between the churchgoer whose face he has painted and his beloved Tosca. 
Authenticating his love, the aria culminates in the line, But when I paint, it is you alone, Tosca, who is my only thought. As it turns out, the woman Cavaradossi used as his muse was none other than the escaped prisoner's sister. She had been regularly patronizing that particular church in search of a good hiding place for the key and a disguise for her brother, Angelotti. By this point, Cavaradossi has had enough of the sacristan's religious interjections and sends him away. The exhausted Angelotti immediately comes out of hiding, and Cavaradossi, who takes a minute to recognize his old acquaintance, pledges to help him. No sooner have they caught up when the voice of Tosca rings out from off stage, famously calling, Mario, Mario, Mario. Immediately suspicious of the locked door and furtive whispering on the other side, Tosca enters with hackles roused and questions, Why is the door locked? And to whom were you talking? Cavaradossi appears to smooth things over, and the duo launches into the duet, Non la suspiri la nostra cassetta, that we heard earlier in this episode. Confident that they will meet after her performance that evening, Tosca begins to exit, but catches sight of her lover's painting of the Madonna, 
which results in an escalated repeat performance of the jealousy episode. Minus the astounding bravery we will later bear witness to, much of Floria Tosca's character is established in these opening scenes. Despite the composer's intentions, opera productions persistently tart up Tosca as an oversexed vixen along the lines of Bizet's Carmen or Verdi's Violetta, critically undermining the potency of her character. Unlike Puccini's soprano ingenues from other operas, Tosca is an unwed, adult woman, and hypersexualizing the role reduces her independence and success as Rome's most in-demand performer to that of a flashy commodity. She is undoubtedly possessive and madly in love with Cavaradossi, but Puccini took great pains to present her as a good and innocent woman with a healthy respect for the church. She shares none of her lover's political liberalism or religious flippancy and lives, as she sings in Vice d'Arte, for art and love. Sensationalism might sell tickets, but it simultaneously destabilizes the opera's central message. The story of Tosca is the thematic double of Shakespeare's Othello, a play which is referenced directly towards the end of Act One. Baron Scarpia is the Iago to Tosca's Othello. To destroy Tosca is to destroy innocence itself. As the opera progresses, Tosca finally eases her jealous onslaught and makes to leave after playfully instructing Cavaradossi to paint his Madonna's blue eyes dark. Once she's gone, Angelotti reappears. A cannon shot is heard signaling that the police have discovered Angelotti's escape, and he and Cavaradossi flee to the painter's house. Immediately after their departure, the sacristan re-enters to announce the news of Napoleon Bonaparte's defeat as he directs the choir boys to prepare the Te Deum, a short religious service of gratitude. The general excitement is cut short by the entrance of Baron Scarpia, chief of police, on the trail of Angelotti. The only remaining trace of the escaped prisoner is a lady's fan, a forgotten remnant of the feminine disguise left by his sister, but that is all Scarpia needs. Judging from the emblem on the fan, in combination with Cavaradossi's painting of the Madonna, the police chief has already pieced together a relatively accurate picture of Angelotti's protectors. Upon seeing Tosca re-enter the church, Scarpia immediately decides to use her to uncover Angelotti's whereabouts. In an audience aside, Scarpia announces, To manipulate the perils of jealousy, Iago had a handkerchief, and I have a fan referencing the famous scene from Act Three, Scene Three of Shakespeare's Othello, during which Iago provokes the title character's jealousy with the use of a stolen handkerchief. Although they've been present all throughout Act One, Puccini's use of church bells takes front and center just as Scarpia puts his plan into action. The bells are employed as a structural component of the music, dramatic coloring, and a constant reminder that we are in Rome. Tolling bells weave in and out of the background as Scarpia first approaches Tosca, forcing her to touch him with an offering of holy water. Tosca erupts into a jealous rage when presented with the fan and, playing right into the police chief's hands, takes off towards Mario's house with Scarpia's lackeys following at a safe distance. The bells retake the four and serve to invite the congregation to Mass for the Te Deum, or Hymn of Thanksgiving. 
You would be hard-pressed to find a more inventive and intensely chilling scene than the close of Act One. The bells, atmospheric at first, slowly develop a sinister quality as their interchanging Fs and B-flats hammer out over the next 73 measures of Scarpia's aria, Trespiri una carrozza, though it is most commonly referred to as the Tedeum. An aria is meant to give insight into a character's mindset, and boy do we get an earful from Scarpia. The baritone's Tedeum begins with a calm description of the pleasure he will derive from breaking Tosca's spirit, destroying her love, and using her body against her will. Motivated to destruction by the very existence of innocence and beauty, Puccini's Scarpia moves in league with Shakespeare's Iago, both characters yielding to the divinity of hell. At the peak of the choir's religious ecstasy, Scarpia cries out, Tosca, you make me forget God, before he kneels down in prayer. Respiri, una carrozza, presto, seguila dovunque vada, non visto profili. Palazzo Farnese.
2 opens at dusk in Scarpia's apartment where he is enjoying a sumptuous meal. Similarly to Mozart's Don Giovanni, or Verdi's Duke of Mantua from Rigoletto, heartless characters with insatiable cravings can always find time for an exorbitant dinner in between ruining other people's lives. It's a tried-and-true formula. If you don't have a conscience, you will never lose your appetite. Scarpia continues to dine leisurely while mulling over the pleasures of violent conquest over soft surrender. With a swig of wine, he states his modus operandi. I crave, I pursue the craved thing, sate myself and cast it by, and seek new bait. God made diverse beauties as he made diverse wines, and of these godlike works, I mean to taste to the fullest. Scarpia's lackeys return and report that Tosca led them to Mario Cavaradossi's property, but they were unable to find the escaped prisoner. Convinced that Mario knows where Angelotti is hidden, they arrested him and brought him in for questioning. Scarpia commences with the interrogation, with Cavaradossi denying each question in turn. Tosca arrives after her performance, as she was ordered, and is surprised to find Cavaradossi in Scarpia's apartments. She runs to hug her lover, and he quickly instructs her not to mention anything regarding Angelotti's hiding place in the well. Scarpia has Cavaradossi hauled off to an adjoining torture chamber, ensuring that Tosca can hear his cries of pain whilst he begins the coercion process. After Tosca denies any knowledge of Angelotti's whereabouts, Scarpia begins to describe the methods he is using to torture Cavaradossi. Your lover's bound hand and foot a ring of hooked iron at his temples, so that they spurt blood at each denial. He even opens the door slightly to make the cries more audible. Although Mario instructs Tosca to maintain her silence, she relents and tells Scarpia that Angelotti is hidden down the well in the garden. Just then, news of Napoleon's victory outside the city reaches all the characters. The previous announcement of his defeat had been false. Cavaradossi joyously cries out, victory, victory, and is promptly carted away as a political prisoner bound for execution. Scarpia and Tosca are left alone in his chamber, and Scarpia resumes his bargaining. Why are you so downhearted? he asks her. Shall we try to find a way to save him together? Tosca coldly asks him his price, to which he laughingly responds, they say that I am venal, but it is not for money that I will sell myself to beautiful women. By the time Scarpia finishes describing how her pain in combination with her hatred for him fuels his lustful desire for her body, Tosca realizes he is serious. In order to save her lover, she has to give her unwilling body to Scarpia. In a last appeal to pity, Tosca sings the Visi d'Arte, echoing Christ's cries on the cross of, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Naturally, this does nothing to sway Scarpia, but their exchange is interrupted by news that Angelotti committed suicide before he could be arrested. Scarpia demands his corpse be hanged anyway, and then issues directions for Cavaradossi's death by firing squad. Tosca stops him and signals that she will submit to his desires. Scarpia insists that Mario cannot just be released and that they must stage a sham execution, after which Cavaradossi and Tosca can leave Rome with a pass of safe conduct. Elated, Scarpia begins to pen the passes for the lovers. Unbeknownst to him, Tosca has picked up a sharp knife from Scarpia's dinner table and hides it behind her back. 
She waits until the police chief has affixed his seal to the papers and turns around to approach her, sighing, Tosca, now you are mine at last. Tosca proceeds to stab him directly in the chest, announcing, This is the kiss of Tosca. Standing over the dying man, Tosca sings, Is your blood choking you? Killed by a woman. Look at me. I am Tosca. When Scarpia is indeed dead, Puccini's stage directions instruct the soprano to wash her hands and fix her hair. After removing the papers of safe passage from the dead man's clutches, she lights two candles, places them on each side of Scarpia's head, and rests a crucifix on his chest. The final act opens to early morning church bells and the song of a shepherd boy in the fields. A drowsy jailer is roused by the sound of guards escorting Mario Cavaradossi to his cell. Cavaradossi declines the offer for a priest, but requests a pen and paper so that he may write his last words to Tosca. In the Sardou original, the condemned man decides to take a nap. It is probably warranted, but Puccini's version is certainly the more satisfying. Reminiscing on his love for Tosca, Cavaradossi sings the show-stopping tenor lament E Lucevan le Stelle before breaking down in sobs.
Suddenly, Tosca is led into the cell by one of Scarpia's henchmen. The lovers embrace, and Tosca shows Cavaradossi the papers of safe passage issued to the both of them. She relates the events of the past few hours to a shocked, horrified, and thoroughly impressed Cavaradossi. Tosca explains that the execution is to be staged, and all preparations have been made for their escape from Rome. Tosca excitedly reprises their Act One's lovers' exchange laying out plans for their future together. If it is played correctly, audiences should be keenly aware that Cavaradossi does not believe he will come out of this alive. Overwhelmed by the absoluteness of Tosca's love, this is the one instance in which his courage fails him. He cannot bring himself to tell Tosca the truth and permits himself to indulge in her fantasy. Tosca jokingly instructs him how to fall without hurting himself, like Tosca on the stage. A guard comes to collect the artist and leads him into a courtyard where the firing squad is already assembled. Cavaradossi refuses a blindfold as Tosca looks on from a side room. The commanding officer lowers his saber and the rows of men level their muskets before firing. Mario's body drops to the ground as Tosca sings out, Ah, what an actor! From this point, the opera seems to end as quickly as it began. Tosca runs out impatiently to urge Cavaradossi not to move until everyone has left. Upon lifting the cloak, she realizes that she was deceived by Scarpia and that her lover was shot dead. Her cries mingle with confused shouts from the chorus who have discovered Scarpia's body. The guards quickly zero in on Tosca as she escapes up a set of stairs. You will pay dearly for his life, a police agent yells. Leaping up onto the ledge of a parapet, Tosca turns just in time to yell, with my own, 
before throwing herself over the edge with the cry, O Scarpia, before God. Tosca is endlessly fascinating. The music is inventive, gripping, and risky. The characters are complex amalgamations of emotion and social criticism. And this somewhat straightforward narrative manages to simultaneously examine the human condition while calling the eternal struggle between good and evil into question. That's rather a lot to tackle in under two hours, and it is quite easy to upend the sophisticated analysis of existence by turning it into the tawdry thriller it was never meant to be. There is a proportionately measurable relationship between the greatness of a performative work of art and its propensity for failure. In other words, the more profound, the easier it is to bungle, and Puccini's Tosca is a classic example. When Tosca is performed as a celebration of life and art, there are few operas that can equal the timelessness of its beauty and the strength of its message. 
That was lecturer Deidre Bird guiding us through the musical themes and plot of Puccini's political thriller. If you love opera and want to learn more, check out the Metropolitan Opera Guild's newly launched virtual classroom. Whether you're currently learning from home or planning to introduce opera into your classroom this fall, there's something for all levels of learning. Visit our website, www.metguild.org, and click For Schools for more information. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thanks for listening.